You're tuned to WFHB. Volunteer-powered, listener-supported, Community Radio for South Central Indiana. Good afternoon. Reporting for WFHB, this is Benedict Jones. And I'm Ruth Flegman. This is the WFHB Local News for Tuesday, January 17, 2023. Later in the program, Georgia Representative Park Cannon gave an impassioned speech during the MLK Day celebration at Buzzkirk Chumley last night. More in today's feature report. Also coming up in the next half an hour, Lil Bub's Lil Show, done in collaboration between the WFHB Local News and Lil Bub's Big Fund. But first, your local headlines. On January 11th at the Monroe County Commissioner's meeting, Commissioner Penny Giddens was nominated to be president of the commission. The nomination passed unanimously. Next, Health Department Director Lori Kelly gave an update on COVID-19 variants in the county. Yes, hello, good morning. Um, Currently, Monroe County is in the medium COVID-19 community level, although hospital admissions have started lowering this week. Um, As a reminder, there are many ways in which we can protect ourselves. This includes staying up to date with vaccinations, monitoring for symptoms and frequent testing, wearing a mask, and performing frequent hand hygiene. Uh, We are seeing increases of the XBB 1.5 variant. Symptoms have not changed with this variant and seem to be similar to the flu, although it is thought to be more transmissible. Uh, Vaccinations are still available at the public health clinic. The phone number is 812-353-3244 for appointments. During public comment, Monroe County resident Tambi Wykley-Cassidy asked the commissioners for county assistance with flooding in the old Clear Creek Valley. Um, I'm here today because of the you know, continued flooding experiences that we have in our old Clear Creek Valley. Um, the neighbors and I had a meeting last week, and we came up with what we feel are some actual items that we would like to request some assistance um, by the county and and helping us to, you know, rectify some of the pro- continued problems that we have. Um, first, we'd like uh, to have you create a sustainable flood mitigation plan for the Old Clear Creek Valley. This area is identified in the Long Range Stormwater Improvement Plan as Clear Creek Jackson Creek on page twenty three. The watershed is ranked as a high priority on the ranking matrix as the, quote, second highest number of issues documented in any watershed within Monroe County, end quote. Um, there, I separated uh, possible ways that we could use assistance um, in, our, in our discussion. Um, first uh, would be simplistic ordinances. Uh, and planning objectives that make it possible to bring buildings up to standards for FEMA state and local ordinance. Um, Seems that it's easier to to go to the state. They have a simplistic checklist in their 
and they're very helpful uh, with that. And I don't think that's the case here locally, hasn't been the experience right now. Um, we need an extended sewer main along South Rogers. There are several st uh, structures, homes, and a couple businesses there. It's been mentioned by our local planning department that septics will not be acceptable, that will have to be on city sewer. So in order to improve a dozen homes along there, we don't have that. Um, property owners need financial assistance in order to bring structures up to the FEMA state and local standards. Buildings need to be elevated. They need new foundations. Um, some of them have basements, which is a travesty in a, in a floodplain. Um, they have furnaces that are either in the basement or in the crawl spaces. Um, so they need updating to their heating systems and so forth. Or the county could choose to buy out all properties or some properties in order to create detention areas. Um, we also suggest some road infrastructure, replacements of the, a few bridges on South Rogers, Church Lane, and Jackson Creek. Our last flood peeled the pavement right off of Jackson Creek and just assist with cleanup because there's like a wooded area on the south end of Clear Creek and everything that washes down the creek gets stuck in those trees. There are, I mean, there's been tractors, um, trailers flipped over, like to pull behind for your lawn tractor. There's a dishwasher sitting there right now. There are culverts in the creek, oddly, down there south. Um, there are old railway abutments and so and, forth. And I just note yeah, that the... Yes. I just have one last comment, if it's okay, it's a very brief. Um, the desired results would be to follow objectives of the long-range stormwater improvement plan. And I quote, improve public safety, reduce damages to property and public infrastructure, avoid e economic disruption and losses, and reduce human suffering and protect the environment. Thank you for listening today. Next, County Attorney Jeff Cockrell asked the commissioners to approve an agreement with EU Banks and Associates for ongoing Houston South litigation. Uh, yes, this is a uh, continuation of uh the litigation we have about the uh, Lake Monroe uh, watershed and keeping the water quality um, what, uh, in, in good shape. Um, I think the executive session that we talked about at the beginning of this, where we did the memory, is we discussed this with the, the county council. Um, this is a little bit different than our original agreement in that we, in that our original, we paid more of the share of the cost for this. This, this one, we only pay a third of a third of these fees, and so. Um, in order to keep moving forward with this, it was recommended at, that that we uh, approve this agreement. Commissioner Julie Thomas shared her support for the agreement and asked about whether or not the council had already voted on it. Cockerell said he was not sure and would get back to her. Yeah, um, first, just a comment that I'm glad that we're standing up for all of the residents and businesses of Monroe County <laughs> and the availability of uh, clean water is vital. Uh, for all of us. And so I'm proud to be part of this uh, effort to protect um, our lake and, and um, our drinking water supply. Commission President Penny Givens spoke about recent updates on the Houston South Project and outlined the reasons why the litigation is necessary. I would like to say that I was dismayed to see in the paper last week that the Forest Service is planning to go ahead um, 
with the work they had planned in the Houston South region of the Hoosier National Forest. And, you know, in talking with people that are much more knowledgeable than I am about things like this, if Forest Service would just leave it alone, it will return to its natural state of being a hardwood forest. We don't need to be doing clear cutting and application of herbicides and burning and the, the uh, kind of disruption to the soil that happens with heavy logging. And so I'm pleased that, that we are making this effort to um, ensure the ongoing quality of our drinking water. It impacts over 120,000 people in Monroe County. And so um, I'm pleased that we're that we're continuing to work with uh, Eubanks. The commissioners approved the agreement unanimously. The next Monroe County Commissioner's meeting will be held on January 18th. Monday, the city of Bloomington hosted the 2023 Martin Luther King Jr. Day celebration at the Buzzkirk Chumley Theatre. The event featured keynote speaker Representative Park Cannon, a Georgia state representative who is only one of two queer lawmakers in the Georgia General Assembly. Cannon is also the youngest member of the Georgia state legislature. Cannon recently made headlines when she was arrested for knocking on the door of Georgia's then Republican governor, while he signed a bill which limited voting rights in the state. Cannon recounted the experience during her address, encouraging the audience to keep knocking. What happens when we're truth tellers or we're visionaries and we have stories that come up out of us and maybe it's almost like someone is speaking through us? I feel that a lot of times. And so these past few years, there's been a few difficult times where we were truth telling during a global pandemic in a place that constantly gave out police interactions and took away the right to vote. So throughout this time, we continue to create coalitions and we put our stories from our communities together to try to make our case and to try to bring people closer together. I remember March 25th, two years ago, and then it goes blank for a few months. I had gone to my job at the state capitol and I serve as the secretary of our caucus. So I am that millennial you want in the room. I've got two phones. I can help you get on the Zoom and turn your audio on while taking minutes and paying attention. So we went to work early. Eight o'clock, we start our caucus meeting. Nine o'clock, we've got rules committee. And we found out that a bill we had been tracking the day before that was two pages long had turned into a 98-page bill. That bill rewrote the entire voting code for the state of Georgia. It changed everything from voter eligibility to registration to administration to tabulation. So we started to read this legislation as quick as we could. 
but it quickly passed the Rules Committee and came to the House floor. At 10 a.m. when we gaveled in, we went to the media and we told them what was happening. And we got together and we got our speeches together for the floor and figured out how we would dissent. But there was a narrow rule that had been given. So we were only going to have a short amount of time. The vote happened and the bill passed. It was immediately transmitted to the Senate and it passed the Senate as well. We then found out that it was time for the House to adjourn and most folks started packing up their bags, but as the secretary, I stick around on the floor. I like to see what happens before and after. So I stuck around for a few minutes and as everyone went out the staircase that way, I went out the staircase this way, received a text message that the bill was going to be signed in about 10 minutes. So I went downstairs. We were still in the midst of a pandemic, so I had my mask on. I wear glasses so that I can see. I had an AirPod in my ear. It was kind of chilly, so I had a scarf on. I am a fashion girl, so I had heels on. <laughs> and I went downstairs, had my purse. And I began knocking on the door. This is the door that the governor was behind. And in those moments, I wasn't thinking about this as an action of violence, knocking on a door. In fact, I was thinking about it as what Dr. King would do, an act of nonviolent direct action. People love to talk about how he was nonviolent, but he was really about nonviolent direct action. So today marks 662 days since I spent five hours in the Fulton County Jail for knocking on the governor's door. And some of the time in between then and now has really truly gone blank. I'd like to thank the folks who are a part of my community and my support system for helping me to remember that it's okay to live through trauma and it's okay to sometimes not know how to talk about it, but how drastically important it is that at some point on special days like today, or when you're wearing something that makes you feel really confident, like a hot pink dress in Indiana, that you talk about it. Because that bill, in its haste and its secrecy, was very suspicious. The fact that they wanted to sign this bill after rushing it through a process with closed doors, blinds drawn, underneath a painting of a plantation in Georgia, really spoke about how extreme and to what lengths they would go to restrict the right to vote. And that I was targeted for standing up and saying maybe someone should be able to bear witness to this and dissent. 
So the next day was a session day. I had to go back to the state capitol. I was trying to figure out what would make me feel safe enough. How could I feel comfortable that the same police officers that arrested me were truly there to protect me? This is a feeling that many marginalized folks feel every day and walk around with. We feel it every day. So I started to go through my phone book to figure out who did I want to come and walk me into the state capitol. And because of the activism work that I've done over the years in the communities that I've been a part of, I was able to call Dr. Martin Luther King Jr.'s son, Martin III. And I told him, Mr. Martin, I'm scared to go back to the Capitol. And he talked me through. He said, well, do you need my security officers? You want plainclothes security? You want escort detail? Well, how can I help? And I really said, it feels more spiritual than that. And he said, I understand. His wife interjected and said, we'll walk with you. So the next day, Martin III and his wife, a number of other civil rights leaders and community leaders met me at the Capitol. I didn't know, but they had spent all night printing t-shirts and getting together. And they created a walkway for me to walk from the parking lot into the Capitol we marched around the Capitol in silence, stopping at the intersection of MLK Junior Drive, which when King was assassinated, the governor of Georgia said no, his parade could not come down by the state Capitol and turned his back. But now is Martin Luther King Junior Drive. He stopped there. We looked at the statue that commemorates the black people who built the Georgia State Capitol. And then we went inside and we stopped at the King portrait and prayed before we walked upstairs and I went behind the black curtain. I've talked a lot recently about this black curtain that we have at the State House in Georgia. They said it was because of COVID, even though many of them did not believe that COVID was real. <laughs> they put up this black curtain on both sides so that the public could no longer come and address us at the ropes. So leaving those folks in t-shirts, the folks who had walked me in to go behind a black curtain it was really painful. Again, I was really scared. But I knew that these feelings that I felt were not my own. They were the people who are marching through me and who speak through me, who felt a little quivering too. Many activists who become elected officials like me, we feel this. 
because we want to speak up for our communities. And we know the severity of us speaking up. And we're willing to face whatever comes towards us. But what resources do we really have? I'd like to ask you to reflect on two questions. Do you have a deep understanding of what it means to move towards shared liberation? I'd also like to ask you, have you ever provided space for reflection and processing of grief and injustice? As you think about yourself, I'm wondering about your core hopes, I'm wondering about your objectives. I want to know why you're here. I want to know what we can do and accomplish together. And are we doing things for ourselves or for others or for the both of us? Because these are the questions I truly believe that Dr. King was asking towards the end of his life. To listen to the full MLK Day celebration, visit catstv.net and click on community videos. Good evening, I'm Abe Shapiro, and this is Disabulletin, where we cover the top stories impacting the disability community across the country and around the world. This evening, we bring you a new special report regarding the latest Supreme Court case related to individuals with disabilities. Slated to be argued before the Supreme Court at high noon tomorrow, the case itself concerns Miguel Luna Perez of Sturgis, Michigan, who, according to court documents, is deaf and communicates through sign language. From age nine until he was 20, Perez attended a public school in Sturgis. During that time span, the Perez family alleges that the school district did not provide their student with an adequate sign language interpreter. This action left him, as stated by the Perez camp's petition to the Supreme Court, quote, an academic and social outcast. End quote. After being told that their son would be awarded a certificate of completion instead of a high school diploma, the Perez family filed a lawsuit against both the Michigan Department of Education and the Sturgis District, arguing both had violated their son's rights under both the Americans with Disabilities and Individuals with Disabilities Education Acts, which require students with disabilities to be provided a free and appropriate public education and bar discrimination against such students, respectively. After a state judge dismissed the family's lawsuit on the grounds that he was not in a position of power to hear it, the Sturgis School Board settled Perez's lawsuit by offering to pay for Perez to attend the Michigan School for the Deaf. The Supreme Court agreed to hear this case, known in legalese as granting certiorari, in October of 2022. Following tomorrow's arguments, 
This bulletin will highlight the defining moments on the evening news and expand upon the implications of this case on special education in the United States. Until then, I'm Abe Shapiro. Live and learn. Welcome to Lil Bub's Lil Show, a weekly co-production from WFHB and Lil Bub's Big Fund. We highlight adoptable animals with special needs in South Central Indiana and spotlight topics to promote human animal welfare. First, here is today's featured animal. Today's featured pets, Emmy and Toby, come to us from our local Bloomington Animal Shelter. Emmy and Toby are a senior pair of bonded cats who have lived together for 10 years. They can often be found cuddled up together relaxing in their colony room. They are very affectionate, not only with each other, but also their human friends. Emmy loves to rub up against your legs, and Toby loves to lounge, purring loudly while making biscuits. Emmy and Toby get along great with other animals, and will blend right in with a new family. Emmy and Toby have been at the animal shelter for a very long time and are looking for a retirement home together. If you're interested in adopting today's featured pet, you can learn more at our websites, goodjobbub.org and wfhb.org. You're listening to Lil Bub's Lil Show, a co-production of WFHB and Lil Bub's Big Fund. We now turn to this week's featured topic. Today's featured topic is senior pets. Thanks to better medical care and awareness on the part of pet owners, it's not unusual for pets to live much longer than ever before. As pets age, they need extra care and attention, and caring for a senior pet can become challenging if you're not adequately prepared for your pet's old age. It may be difficult to believe that your pet has reached old age, but the fact is, most cats and dogs are considered senior pets by the time they're around 10 years old. Larger breed dogs tend to have shorter lifespans and are considered geriatric when they are approximately six years of age. Although older pets may develop age-related problems, good care allows them to live happy, healthy, and active lives well into their senior years. Senior pets are more likely to develop diseases like heart, kidney, or liver disease, cancer, or arthritis. Older pets may have issues with their vision and hearing as they age, and some may develop cataracts and diabetes. Older pets may also have less energy than they did when they were younger. Arthritis may affect your pet's ability to run and jump as they once did. There are many medications and therapies that can help treat many of these common ailments. Things like orthopedic beds, raised feeding platforms, stairs, and ramps may also help your older pet deal with arthritis. Behavioral changes are also common in older pets. Regular visits to your vet may help identify any of these conditions that are more common in older pets. Sudden weight loss is also a cause for concern, 
and you should consult with your vet if your pet's weight is of concern. Caring for older pets can be difficult at times, especially if your elderly pet has a chronic medical condition or exhibits any behavior changes. The basics to remember are that senior pets generally need increased attention, including more frequent visits to the vet, possible changes in diet, and in some cases, alterations to their home environment. Here are a few things to be aware of with your senior pet. Try to be aware of any changes in behavior. Schedule regular vet visits. Change your pet's diet as needed. Try to keep your pet moving and active. Look for any signs of arthritis. Try to make your home more senior pet friendly. Be patient. Help your pet stay clean. Be aware of the signs of cognitive dysfunction. Stay focused on your pet's quality of life. One of the easiest and most important things you can do for your senior pet is to give them love. Our companion animals can sense when we are nervous or stressed, but old age in pets doesn't have to be something to fear. If your pet has any medical issues or changes to their health, just speak with your veterinarian and help your pet live their best life well into their golden years. Thank you for tuning in to Lil Bub's Lil Show on WFHB, produced in partnership with Lil Bub's Big Fund. For more info on today's featured animal and topic, find us online at goodjobbub.org and wfhb.org.